Switching to Geico is a good idea, especially when you consider everything. First off, Geico makes it easy to switch. They have licensed agents available 24-7 online or over the phone. But if it's so easy, you might start thinking everything is easy, even big wave surfing. And it's not. It's actually quite difficult. Well, if you switch to Geico, you could save hundreds on car insurance. And you could keep saving by bundling your motorcycle, boat, and RV, plus your home or renter's insurance. But saving money might lead you to make some questionable purchases, like a 20-foot feather boa. And do you know how hard it is to clean a 20-foot feather boa? Well, they do have an industry-leading mobile app you can use to pay your bill, file and manage a claim, or add a new driver. But when life gets a little easier, it makes you too confident. And you start calling everyone ace. And you're better than that. Well, GEICO has a 97% customer satisfaction rating and has been saving people money for 85 years. It's hard to beat that. But you're right. Switch to GEICO. It's obviously a good idea. It's Say It Ain't Contagious with Adrian Burgos, Greg Calcaterra, Stephen Goldman, Frank Gritty, Lincoln Mitchell, and Tova Wang. to a new episode of Say It Ain't Contagious, the podcast where we talk about the intersection of baseball, social justice, and politics. I am Craig Calcaterra. I'm joined today, as always, by Tova Wang, Lincoln Mitchell, Frank Garrity, and Stephen Goldman. Our fifth member, Adrian Burgos Jr., is on assignment. Actually, he's he's literally grading assignments right now because of the tyranny of the semester schedule. He remains, however, in our hearts. This week, you will not be surprised. We're going to talk about what everybody in baseball is talking about this week. The unwritten rules inspired by a wonderful incident that happened uh, with Chicago White Sox this past week. Your mean Mercedes, the rookie designated hitter and backup catcher for the uh, for the White Sox, was up to bat late in the game with uh, a huge blowout. The Twins were the uh, Twins were losing terribly to the White Sox. Uh, the Twins had put in a position player. Uh, to throw meatballs and get through the game through a 47-mile-per-hour ethos pitch on a 3-0 count. Your mean Mercedes broke an unwritten rule, which was you're not supposed to pile on in a game that you are already winning greatly. Swung away, hit a monster home run. Everybody loved it, except his manager, Tony Larusa and a few old farts who do not like that sort of thing. And it became a big frou-frou in the media and in baseball circles this week. Uh, once again, bringing up the discussion of whether or not you are supposed to try all the time in a sport that is competitive. Crazy, I know, but that's kind of where we are. So where we wanted to go this week is we wanted to talk about unwritten rules in general. Uh, obviously, we all have opinions about the Uranium Mercedes, Tony LaRusa thing, and I hope everyone offers them, especially if they're negative towards Tony LaRusa, because I like that. <laughs> but uh, there are unwritten rules everywhere else, too. They're not just in baseball. And I think maybe it'll help us understand what goes on in the unwritten rules conversation in baseball if we talk about it a little bit more in other contexts. So so that's what we're going to do, folks, and, and we hope we aren't stupid about it. So beginning our not being stupid about it, I think, let's let's talk with Frank, Frank Garrity. Where are some unwritten rules presenting themselves these days? What is a, a, a world of, of unwritten rules that we are all trying to navigate that might be relatable to our friends, Yermeen and Tony? Well, when we started talking about doing this this topic, uh, one that came to mind is uh, the the whole question. Well, the, the year long question of masks in our society, right? Uh, where states, some states have mandated mask usage. Or the CDC encourage, uh, or you know, at least uh, certainly since uh, uh, Biden came into office, 
you know, wearing masks. And now the CDC basically recommended the people who have been vaccinated no longer have to wear masks outdoors and can do indoor activities uh, almost as before. So now you have this, you know, so in the last year, we've had this willful disregard by many people uh, of, of the mask mandates, right? Protests. Uh, against them, right? We've seen very ugly incidents of that over and over again. Clashes in stores, clashes all over the place around the mask question, which became a cultural war question, thanks to the Trump by Republicans. But now we're in a real moment where we're now, as we're moving through this new phase of, of semi-post-pandemic life, you know, the question of you know, do you wear masks presents itself. And certainly, it, it, it's something I'm I'm very I'm feeling you know very much right now as as a vaccinated person who's blessed to be in that position. Uh, you know, in a city which where there's been a lot of adherence to mask wearing, this is not places where people have been, you know, staging a big, big protest against masks. And yet I, I'm in this position where now I feel like we're, we're this is now an unwritten rule about when do you wear a mask or do you not? Uh, you know, I was walking around Harlem the other day uh, and uh, I had my mask on and I looked around. And I think it was the day that the CDC announcement came on and I'm surrounded by a number of people who weren't wearing masks. And it was really jarring to me, right? And so now I'm like, okay, so should I keep wearing the mask or should I not? And and now that unfortunately it's going to put us in another position of uncertainty about how do we respond to the the, pand- the, the pandemic as it moves into this new phase. Did someone throw a baseball at you for doing it wrong? <laughs> no, because I was walking around in Harlem, which is a civilized part of the world, unlike Major League Baseball. <laughs> <laughs> people just were doing their thing you know new yorkers you know just we we tend to do i mean we have our clashes around these things for sure but uh i mean it was oddly refreshing actually to see a bunch of kids in the playground you know uh, outside not wearing masks and it seemed to make a lot of sense but then i it put me in this weird position wearing my mask on a 75 degree day feeling very hot with it on and uh you know uh and not being sure whether i should take it off or keep it on and that's the weird thing, though, right? Because we this is early. We we really don't know what the right answer is in any given situation. I, I was in the same situation the other night. I, it was my anniversary. My wife and I went out to dinner because we're vaccinated and we got a nice patio seat. But, you know, do you wear the, the mask when you're walking to your patio seat? And then when you get up to go to the bathroom and there, there are rules for that that the restaurants have. But then there are rules for that society has. And then there's that rich guy that, you know, just came off the golf course over there who is looking at you side eye because, you know, how dare you wear a mask in Donald Trump's America? You know, so there's uncertainty involved and and we don't seem to have it in baseball so much there there for years and years was always a certainty of this is how things are done but now we're seeing some pushback on that and it gets to the idea of unwritten rules might be right might be wrong they 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 there might be many truths in these and i want to talk to lincoln about this a little bit because lincoln there are unwritten rules that aren't just in baseball and sometimes they make sense right well, yes. I mean, just to, I'm going to make one baseball comment because you asked me to. Apparently, the late yeah. 80s and early 90s, an unwritten rule is that if your two biggest sluggers are on steroids, you don't say anything about it, according to the rules. <laughs> <laughs> but, but with regards to your question, to me, unwritten rules are absolutely foundational. That, that, that is what culture is. That is how society works. And what the problems occur, and, and we see this all the time, an unwritten rule is that uh, you – you don't rush in front of an old person in line if they're if you're checking out of the grocery store, to like because you can get there just half a second faster than them, right? And I mean, there, there are unwritten rules everywhere. An unwritten rule is how you greet somebody, right? In some cultures, you kind of do the kiss on the cheek. If you do it a little too closely, you're breaking the unwritten rule, and it kind of weirds people out, right? But the problem is, and I'm just giving those two kind of almost random examples that come to my head right away, but they are everywhere. If you stop and think, 
Um, when I first moved to, I'll give you a, a very, which I think is a very bizarre example, but a fun one. In San Francisco, where I grew up in California, it's an unwritten rule that if you say to somebody, I'm going to give you a ride home, what you mean is that you'll take them to their house, right? In New York, it often means I'll take you to the nearest subway stop. And when I first moved here and people did that, I thought that was the rudest thing. I was personally <laughs> insulted. It was just, and, and, and as far, because they had broken one of my unwritten rules. But another way to say that is I wasn't familiar with their culture, right? And the, so, so unwritten rules can hold a culture together, right? The problem is that, I mean, I'm thinking of Doc Ellis's book, uh, Doc Ellis in the Country of Baseball, right? Now, there is no actual country of baseball, but if we go with that metaphor for a minute, the problem is baseball, for the, from the Tony La Russa perspective, is a multicultural country. And Tony La Russa is not comfortable with it being a multicultural country. Now, if we take that out of the baseball context, the, the challenges around unwritten rules are that they are often contested because of generational change, because of cultural change, because in a country like the United States of immigration and diversity. So th- there are unwritten rules about that you, you call somebody sir, right? But in other parts of the country, in other cultures, you don't, right? Let me tell you something. As, as kind of a lefty Jewish hippie, right, coming to New York to do politics, one of, the, one of the first unwritten rules I learned was that African-American culture, you dress differently to meet with somebody than you do in kind of the left wing of white California politics, right? I wasn't being disrespectful if I didn't wear a tie. I just didn't know the unwritten rule. But you could see how somebody could say, why do these people keep asking me to dress up, right? And how that could get to be anger instead of understanding this is just an unwritten rule. So this is really complex and they're around us everywhere. And I suspect that any of us or I'll just speak for me because I'm, I'm maybe Craig and Stephen have more com- more familiarity with this. But I suspect if I walked into a major league clubhouse or dugout, let's say I don't know in, in disguise or something, I would break twenty unwritten rules, unwritten rules that you two might understand about how you talk to people, when you talk to people. You know. Oh no, I've end. broken them all, Lincoln, and I've been told about it by sports reporters constantly. <laughs> and now you and now you know them, but I don't even know them yet, right? So they're around us. <laughs> Well, okay, well, maybe you should learn them if you keep breaking them. But, but, but the point is, the unwritten rules are around us everywhere. The problems come in, one, when the unwritten rules, you know, I mean, I mean in, for a long time in American history, an unwritten and sometimes written rule was that um, you gave up your seat on the bus if you were a person of color, for, if you're an African-American for a white person, right? You walked on the street this way rather than that way. You didn't look at a white woman that way. Those were, those were unwritten rules that were in place that were created, and sometimes they were written, to keep a racially stratified society and apartheid-like society in place. And that's a problem. But the other problems come in when there's contestation and when the consensus around the unwritten rule breaks down. These unwritten rules that Tony La Russa or other players, are, or other older white dudes are walking around thinking are still unwritten rules are no longer unwritten rules, and they haven't processed that yet. It, it occurs to me that if, if we had this conversation 10 years ago in baseball, there would be a, a majority of people talking about the utility and necessity of the unwritten rule about this is why you don't show up Rocco Baldelli and the twins in a, in a blowout, or this is why you do this or don't do that. Uh, it's switched now. I think that there has been a, the, the, the weight of the baseball culture has changed to where now those who assert the unwritten rule, like Tony La Russa and a few other dead enders, 
uh, are, like I said, dead enders. Um, they are now shouted down in a situation where they are trying to assert an old orthodoxy that is no longer uh, relevant. Uh, so are they past Ostova this? I mean, do you, do you think, are, 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 is baseball just lagging the culture as far as this goes? Is this something that we've seen in the culture at large in the past and baseball just isn't doing it well yet because it hasn't figured it out or what's going on with this? I mean, I have more of a question actually. I mean, who, so who wrote the unwritten rules in the first place and who are they made to benefit? And now Steve, who is Steve probably can tell you that. He can tell you everything. Well, baseball went from being a kind of a, a rowdy niche entertainment for people to a family entertainment. And part of that transformation was making sure that people felt safe at the game and that it was not hockey, basically, or what hockey was. I, what, what I know about hockey, you can fit in a, in a pack of chewing gum, but there were constant fights. The umpires were beat up. The Baltimore Orioles of the 1890s were famous for tripping people as they went around the bases or grabbing them by the belt so they, they couldn't score. You were always this close from someone pulling a knife on you as you tried to leg out a double to stop you from reaching second base. There's a, a great story that I find really symbolic about the Huntington Avenue baseball grounds in Boston. The Orioles were there playing, I guess, what would be an early version of the Braves. And I I can't recall who the the other player was, but John McGraw, who was the third baseman on that team and an extremely pugnacious person, got into a fight with one of the other team's players over this kind of of activity. And simultaneously, someone set fire to the ballpark, whether... intentionally or not, I don't know it back in those days, you would sit in the bleachers and there was nothing under them and you would shell peanuts and just drop them onto under the bleachers. And it turns out that peanut shells are incredibly flammable. So possibly someone just flicked a cigarette down there or dropped some ashes. So the ballpark is burning down around these two guys who are still standing in the middle of the field, punching each other in the face. Like that's what baseball was back then. It was not just pure sports. So over time, especially when the American League came in, Ban Johnson's great idea was, let's make this suitable to bring the kiddies to. Let's not just have gamblers and drunk people in the stands. Let's not just have gamblers and drunk people on the field. And so those rules became folkways for the game over a lot of time. And it actually drove John McGraw, same guy, started out as a manager in the American League with the American League version of the Baltimore Orioles, the version I just talked about. This gets a little confusing, but it was the National League version. That team died. So he's managing the the Orioles, and he gets suspended so many times by Ban Johnson that he says, screw this, and jumps to the Giants, where he can be more abusive because the rules in the National League were were different. But as as you said, Craig, over time, what was a necessary alteration to the game to have it make that leap from where it had been to something bigger in the national culture now has done a 180. And instead of being the radical thing to do, hey, let's be civilized, it becomes the enforcement of a conservative way of playing the game because those the, the culture has changed so much that being tamped down forcibly the way they were is less necessary. But even, even then, there are some unwritten rules. I mean, for example... In the last couple of years, a lot of franchises have broken this unwritten rule about tanking. 
And for a long time, not tanking was an unwritten rule. Now, some teams tank because they didn't have any money, but deliberately just tanking. And I think the game is worse for franchises tanking. One of the curious things about that that whole incident with the, with the White Sox is that the other manager went to a position player when he had two or three guys left in the bullpen, which is also breaking the unwritten rules. And I think the unwritten rule that you try to win, I mean, in many games when you're down 5 nothing, you know it's over and you might as well put a position player in the sixth inning. And people don't do it at 5 nothing. Those are unwritten rules that actually keep the game. So so this is there's a lot to this this whole universe. They, if they were all as bad as, as what Tony La Russa is doing now, we wouldn't have him and we wouldn't be having this discussion. Well, I mean, and if you're not supposed to be trying to win at the end of a game because of the score, why don't they just stop playing altogether? Like, just forfeit. <laughs> That's right. I mean, it's the same logic, right? That's what CeCe Sabathia said in his tirade. Is that what uh, he said? So, yeah, CeCe Sabathia is among our many new things hero. in that poem. Can you, can you uh, please um, quote directly from CeCe Sabathia today, Frank? Uh, I'm not as articulate as he was. Uh, that will change the rating of this, of this podcast. Awesome. We will be <laughs> NC-17 if we quoted CeCe Sabathia. He made, made that exact point. He made that exact point. You know, exactly the point that you're making around, like, well, then change the rules. Like, put in mercy rules or something, right? Uh, among other things that he said. Because what, are, you know... I was saying earlier is that I don't know another business in which at some point you just stop trying. You know, I, I've never been in a workplace where there's a certain point in time where you just stop doing your job. Or a political campaign or something like that, where we're winning big, let's not campaign anymore. You don't see that. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll throw one out there actually a little bit. My, my legal experience, when you have a case and you are, you know, fully engaged in, in an adversarial proceeding, you never stop trying. But you often decide not to have that case or bring that case. You, you often decide not to pursue legal remedies that you can pursue, not only just for self-interest, but because, well, it might be self-interest, but there, you know, there, that's a guy we might have to do business with again in a year. Maybe we don't sue him over that contract right now, or, or uh, we don't want to embarrass so-and-so even though we we might get a million bucks from him because, you know, he's, he's, he's a pillar of the community. There, there, there are, some, at least in my town in Columbus, Ohio, which isn't like as nearly cutthroat as a lot of places, um, there are decisions made that aren't based on anything other than that's just not how it's done. It's less and less of that, but but I've seen that at least in the legal profession. But I take that back about politics, because in a town like this one, New York, where politics comes down to Democratic primaries with a consultant class that in, that, that in you know 2021, two consultants who are going against each other in the mayor's race are working together on the controller's race, right? So there are times when you don't rip your opponent's head off because you have to, it's a repeated game. And and organized baseball is, I mean, it's a, pardon me for sounding like a political scientist, but it's a repeated game, right? You not only play 162 games a year, but you want to play kind of an infinite amount of seasons. And and therefore, it's not, a, I mean, I, I just don't see, like, I think if a guy, if I'm a, you in, uh, if, if a position player is up there lobbing the ball, like at that point, it's just goofiness, like, like with Chris Bryant, and Freddie Freeman, and why not try to hit it to the moon? Like that's much more interesting and much more fan friendly for the kiddies than a walk, right? But what is the concept of repeated games in political science? A, a, a repeated game in political science is let's just take an example of passing a bill back when Congress functioned, right? Is that is that because you don't not only have to pass this bill, but you're going to have to pass another bill tomorrow and the next day and the next day, so that informs your strategy on passing this bill. You can't burn any bridges that you might need for the next bill. Does that make sense? Yeah. For our non-science listeners. So baseball's like that. And also players get traded, right? I mean, but that is then very similar to the idea of you don't, 
uh, jump up and down when you hit a home run because you're showing up the pitcher on the other team and then they throw it, you know, you uh, the next time up. There was a fa- very interesting example of this. And I, and I don't, I know we're talking about blowouts. Uh, so, and, and I know this is, uh, uh, I don't mean to hurt, uh, be upset Craig, but the Giants are blowing out the Reds 19 to four right now. And I want to see if anything happens in the bottom of the ninth, who the, who the Giants put in uh, to pitch. But if you remember, the Giants had a hard-throwing right-handed reliever named Hunter Strickland. And Hunter Strickland was a pretty good reliever, except when he was pitching against Bryce Harper. And Bryce Harper <laughs> totally had his number. And the only crime Bryce Harper can be, the only thing Bryce Harper did, I'm not a big Harper fan, but I mean, I doesn't like all he did was hit big home runs in the playoffs against Hunter Strickland, which is exactly what he's supposed to do. I mean, that, that's baseball, right? It's a playoff. You're supposed to hit a home run if you're Bryce Harper. And at one point in the regular season, Hunter Strickland threw at his head, which was way out of line, and Buster Posey didn't come out for the fight. It was two years later, too, right, by the way. Right, right. Two Posey years after the like, big Bryce Harper Like, like Bryce and I might be at the same inauguration of the Hall of Fame. I'm not part of this. And that was but, – but part of that was that, that, that Posey – you know, Strickland was out of line for throwing at Posey. He got upset. There was this dispute. Should Posey have had his teammates back no matter what? But – I think when your teammates being that out of line, no, you, you shouldn't have their back. But that was a contestation. I thought a fascinating discourse about unwritten rules. Well, I guess that's the question that I get back to. I keep getting on that word that you're using, contestation, not just because it's one that's bigger than one I normally use. But it's, it's, it's fascinating because we're clearly at a tipping point in baseball right now where those unwritten rules have been contested. And I, I think we're past the tipping point actually, because of whether it's because of the ascendance of Latino culture in baseball, whether it's be the ascendance of, of superstars who are very young in baseball compared to where they used to be, where we are not, the game is not led by veterans anymore. Uh, we have, we have certainly passed that. And I guess it gets to the point where whenever you have a change in, in norms that, that, period right before and right after the change is maybe the worst time for things. That's that's usually when you're going to have the most friction and the most dust ups. Are we seeing that sort of thing now? Anyone? I, I, I tend to I tend to think so. You know, as, as we were talking, I, I, I started thinking about um, a term that has been on a lot of people's lips over the last year as we embark on the year anniversary of George uh, Floyd's uh, murder, uh, and that's systemic racism. Right. Systemic racism, which we used to call institutionalized racism to discuss and describe and articulate how racism operates in the absence of rules and the absence absence of law. Right. So, you know, we often talk about racism in this country, at least historically speaking, as it related to the Jim Crow South, where there was legalized segregation along with customary. But in most parts of the country, you know, outside the South, uh, you know, it, it operated as, as a set of conventions, right? Unwritten rules. I mean, look at the gentleman's agreement that operated in baseball, for example, right? Uh, that's, a, that's one example. But even as we think about how racism operates today, right? I mean, to me, in the baseball context, I've said this before, but I, I feel like, building on what you just said, Craig, that this clash over unwritten rules is is really a, a product of, of, of reactionary politics right of reaction to you know the perceived uh you know um invasion or the you know the the, the over abundant presence of latinx or latino latin american players right and because i i do think baseball had a higher tolerance for showmanship you know 25 30 40 years ago than it does now so i'm really struck by that i mean you know steve gives us a deeper history of of, of unwritten rules and their enforcement but uh, but I, but it's not by accident that it was Jose Batista, just like Fernando Tatis Jr., and now Yamin Mercedes, who's feeling the brunt of the unwritten rules, right? So so there's that. And then in the context of 
systemic racism, you know, we see this in academia, right? Uh, there's a, there's the inclusion of certain people of color in certain sort of cosmetic positions. So they're just visible enough to stave off any criticism of racism, right? But in actual, in terms of a major demographic, especially in leadership positions, and certainly this is related to the university or major league baseball or corporate America, you know, uh, you know, that's really about selecting just a few, right? That's it. Just a few minoritized people. And I think that that's been the diff- most difficult thing for many people in this country to, to, to really grasp. How does systemic racism actually work? It doesn't work by people just uttering the N-word or, or, or racial epithet. It works in these kind of conventions that lead up, leading us down to the situation where we see over and over again, was that white men dominate the most powerful positions in this country. Uh, and so, you know, so in some ways, you know, we think about unwritten rules in, in terms of racism or systemic racism, as people call it now. You know, it allows us to see how that operates too. racism in our in our society, I think. Well, I mean, you also have another example that seems similar is um, you have the formal redlining of neighborhoods and communities. Mm -hmm. And then you have who are these people invading my neighborhood and why are they acting like that? And they they are not basically there goes the neighborhood (laughs) um, thinking, you know, because you have people who are playing a different kind of music or whatever it is, or, or you have <laughs> immigrant families who are forced to have uh, very big families and small places, all those kinds of things that people say, I'm not being racist. It's the, uh, this is just, you know, ruining the neighborhood. Well, that's a little bit uh, fuzzy there about which, which it is. Well, especially in, in the context of cities, I, I, know I just have one more point related to this, right? I mean, those who are making those claims, there goes a the neighborhood, are usually the people who just arrived, the gentrifiers, <laughs> right? Who gentrify Harlem or gentrify Brooklyn and, and then make complaints around longstanding cultural practices that predated their arrival, right? So it's the yeah, colonizers I mean, that actually make I'm, those claims. I, my neighbors, I, I, I was, I, I've now been almost gentrified out of the neighborhood that at one time I thought maybe I was gentrifying. And my neighbor is like, look askance at me when I sit on my stoop with my dog and listen to music, right? You mentioned, uh, 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 you touched on this issue of policing, but police, a lot of enormous amount of unwritten rules around policing. And if you look at the defund the police movement and the defund the police language, to a great extent, I interpret that as let's change the unwritten rules or let's not keep these unwritten rules. So so I'm, I'm not going to go into this in, in great depth because we've all, we all know this, but an unwritten rule of America is that white neighborhoods are policed differently than Neighborhoods of color, and I only really know the urban case best, so I'll just say particularly, but probably in rural areas as well, but definitely in big cities. An unwritten rule is that you can act like – the cops can act like an occupying army in a low-income, say, African-American neighborhood and not on the Upper East Side or not on Pacific, in Pacific Heights or, or, or you know, Pacific Palisades or something. And they can treat the young – particularly the young men of those communities very, very differently. And, and isn't Tony LaRusso basically saying there goes the neighborhood? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. He's saying there goes the neighborhood as his property values have quintupled. Life gets more magical when you dream. So dream of a Disney cruise filled with magic and wonder. (laughs) Hiya, pal! Sail from Florida to Disney's private island paradise and get ready for a dream come true with Disney Cruise Line. I almost feel bad for Tony LaRusso, and I don't mean that like on the substance here, um, or for any proponent of the unwritten rules. I, I'm sure at some 
point in their head, somewhere in their thinking. They they at least know or or know in their bones what Steve was talking about earlier about this is why this exists in baseball. This is you know, order out of chaos. This is why we do it. They they probably have on some level, and maybe I'm being way too charitable here, uh, some bona fide belief in the purpose of a good purpose of the unwritten rules. And they can't really articulate it. And when they try to articulate it, they're, I, I, I'm not saying anyone's being canceled here, but it's its almost unfair that the least articulate people in this debate are the ones uh, who have the biggest job. The Tony LaRusses of the world have to sort of justify their 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 positions here and they're not really capable of doing it. So I almost feel bad for them, but you know, are we, are we able to, to get beyond what they do say when they talk about these things and what they do say is that there goes the neighborhood. They don't use that term exactly, but they, they say things akin to that. You hear a lot of, uh, you know, it's ruining the game or it's no one has a respect for, for this game. It's the same way the old guy in your neighborhood talks about uh, what, what's happening there. Uh, That's so a I think it's though, Craig, that and and Tony Larusa could opt not to do that. He could understand that. Hey, Mercedes is one of the great stories in baseball this year. He is a 28 year old rookie. He does not have the body of a great athlete. He's kind of a squat guy, five eleven. He has been in the minors where he was a tweener. They couldn't decide if he was a catcher or a first baseman. There's a reason that he's DHing every day for the the White Sox, and he might not have been playing every day if he hadn't just gotten off to this incredible start and kind of seized hold of of the position. I actually do credit Tony Larusa this much. He's the guy who put Mercedes on the team. He had the raw baseball insight to do that much to say, "Hey, I don't care if he's 28. I don't care if we look at him as a journeyman rather than a prospect. He can contribute." Now that he's looking that that gift horse in the mouth to, to invoke a cliche, that's rather sad. And I, I'm thinking back to Joe McCarthy, not the uh, Republican red baiting senator, but the Yankees manager who jumped from that team to the Red Sox in 1948. And when he went, the media said, hey, Joe, you're kind of a hard ass. You have a lot of rules. You have rules about how players dress and how they behave on and off the field. Hey, Ted Williams refuses to wear a tie. Hey, Ted Williams doesn't always take fielding practice. Hey, Ted Williams doesn't always field during the games. So how are you? How are you going to deal with the fact that this guy traverse, uh, you know, perverts all your rules, ignores all your rules? And he said, "Hey, anyone who can't get along with a 400 hitter should have his head examined." He understood. He said, "Let the Wookie win." He accepted <laughs> who Ted Williams was, and that if that team was going to be successful, he needed a happy Ted Williams. And I, I don't know that. Mercedes is going to hit 358 for the rest of the season, but right now he is, especially given the White Sox, their their starting outfield is dead pretty much for the the year due to a a number of rather bizarre and extreme injuries to their their young promising starting outfielders. They need that production, so it would behoove Tony Larusa to shut the hell up. Well, and also, did you see how a couple of his teammates also on social media were standing up for him and sort of saying, "Hey, you do you." Um, it's, it seems like it's going to have an impact on a lot of, I don't know if they were the younger players or what, but not all, it, it was, no, not all of them. yeah. I mean, it's, it was just totally insulting and saying, well, he's a rookie and he got excited. That's like being patted on the head. 
Yeah, the, the quote that really stuck out to me, it, now a couple of younger players, but uh, he's younger, but Tim Anderson is also basically the team leader of the White Sox. It's pretty clear. Um, he was very out front in supporting Mercedes on social media. A couple others were as well. Based, you could tell based on who what they were liking on Twitter, for example. There was a relief pitcher on the White Sox who was liking everything that was very critical of Tony La Russa, which is a pretty big transgression among Major League Baseball players. But the one that stuck out the most was Lance Lynn. Lance Lynn is a veteran. He's been around for a long time it's kind of hard for a pitcher to be a team leader but he probably is at least among the pitchers there he said something like you know once you bring another uh, position player into pitch all bets are off we love home runs this is great uh tony larusa was asked about that because larusa on uh on wednesday of of uh, last week when this happened uh larusa said no there hasn't been any uh complaints there hasn't been any dissension in the clubhouse and someone said well lance lynn just said this and tony larusa said Lance Lynn has a locker. I have an office. Uh, just this appeal to his position, which is a very un-Joe McCarthy-like uh, position to take. But Tony La Russa is a straw man here, right? He's kind of a, I mean, I mean excuse my, my, my French, but he's a horse's ass before he was even rehired to manage this team, right? So, but, but there's, uh, what strikes me here is that Tony La Russa is also running a little bit of a protection racket here. Because... The, the reason that you might tell a younger player not to do that, not humiliate him, but just call him aside after he rounds the bases and say, listen, I want you to know why I gave you the take sign privately. And the reason is because somebody on the other team might throw at you next time you're at bat. But what Larusa did was he basically made this public and then basically told the other team, invited the other team, the Twins, to throw at him next time he was at bat. That's why it felt like a protection racket. But I give this as an example where a more thoughtful, compassionate person might actually understand that I'm going to cite, not enforce, not publicize these unwritten rules in a discussion with a player for his own safety. But that's not what we saw here at all. And in fact, I don't think anybody would have thrown with them because the unwritten rules are changing because the demographics of the country of baseball are changing. To, to pick up on something you asked a few minutes ago, I, I would just ask, does anybody who's listening to this think that five years from now, a bat flip is going to be newsworthy. There's going to be any controversy around the bat flip. The bat flip by, say, 2025 will be what the high five was in the early 80s. It's just what you do after a home run. The, the, the demographics are changing, and LaRusse un, is uncomfortable with that, and not just him. I think what uh, another interesting thing that we're seeing here, I, I would argue that the bat flip already has basically been normalized with the exception of a few people who raise their eyebrows and a few media people who realize that's easy content to talk about the bat flip. But you're seeing this disconnect to the extent it's not completely normalized yet or other violations of old written, unwritten rules are not normalized yet. If you follow Major League Baseball social media platforms and their marketing initiatives, and and their commercials and their video games and everything else, they are way out in front with this, you know, wave of youth, wave of uh, Latino uh, culture, everything else. Uh, bat flips are great. Uh, let's see some showmanship. I want to see someone get in somebody's face. I mean, Major League Baseball's business side is trying to sell this because they're trying to make the sport more palatable for young people or more interesting for young people. Um, and the people that are pushing back are the ones that, like players and guys like Tony La Russa. Hey, keep citing Tony La Russa, but he's like an outlier. I mean, there are guys who are like 45 years old, third base coaches who are, are trying to impose That's his this manager stuff last year. He's not yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Jace, uh, Jace Tingler, he, he, he took the other team's side very much like La Russa did against Tatis swinging 3-0 and hitting a grand slam. So there's this huge disconnect between what baseball wants to be for marketing and fan development purposes and, and what those in the game 
are, are still holding on to. I, that seems probably pretty common, though, with any sort of cultural change. I mean, I can't help but see this again. I'm going to say what I said earlier in a different way, that this is just another iteration of the cultural wars, right, uh, that the Republicans fight, right? Uh, even though I think, you know, you, you're juxtaposing, you know, the, the, this kind of reaction with the, the marketing of Major League Baseball is an interesting point. But I, I can't help but think that this is just, you know, the same elements that are behind, you know, the persistence of the Tomahawk chalk at Braves games, which you wrote about today, for example, are, are behind La Russa. And the, the irony of La Russa is that he managed a team of hot dogs in the late 1980s and early 1990s, the Oakland A's, right? Ricky Henderson, Jose Canseco, Dave Henderson. That was a, that was a group of show, showy players who did all sorts of stuff on the field, right? And so, you know, even, even his relation to this question has changed, right? I don't recall him telling Ricky Henderson to tone his act down, right? I mean, he, I, of course he did. Now, those that were veterans. It's not young players, but, you know, even the Roosters, re, you know, kind of, even though he's been an asshole for a long time, but like, you know, there's this, this a pandering to the, you know, to the Republican culture wars that I see going on here. That, you know, that explains why Military Appreciation Day becomes Military Appreciation Weekend, you know, right after the Black Lives Matter, you know, shows up at Major League Baseball games. Like what you're seeing actually is a cultural wars being fought out in the game that we see in the bigger society, I think. Maybe that's a stretch, but I, I, I see it in that light. It's particularly as the rooster has gotten even more and more conservative, you know, pandering to a kind of a kind of Trump by baseball fan. That's kind of how I see LaRusso and, and figures like that. Well, I mean, Larusa is easy also because we know he's a, sort of a very conservative Republican, shall we say? Um, I think he was a Trump supporter. He was at the Glenn Beck rally with Albert Pujols in 2010. That's what it was. That's what I'm remembering. Yes, yeah, course. so that kind of gave the game away. You know, the Cardinals are, are one of those franchises that completely remade themselves into a MAGA outfit. Yes. Wow. But, but the, the, you're absolutely right about the culture war dynamic of this. And a large part of the fan base would hear this conversation and think, you know, how the five of us communists should be lined up against a wall and shot or something. Right? We're espousing critical race theory. Oh, exactly. well, we've, been, we've been thinking that since the beginning of our talking to each other. So no, that, that's, that's absolutely right. New. And that's a large, I mean, I got to say, I went to my first professional baseball game in a long time. It was a minor league game in Wappinger Falls, New York, the Hudson Valley Renegades, which is the high A Yankees team. And I forgot what overhearing conversations between white baseball fans is like, except for when they talk about baseball. And, and it is, I mean, it's not my politics, but it's a. This is where a big chunk of the fan base is, and Larusa knows that. Yeah, that's the other thing. the 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 difference between the fan base and and the players, hey, there there has always been some disconnect. I mean, certainly with integration, we had a disconnect because the baseball fan base was overwhelmingly white. The baseball fan base is not overwhelmingly Latino as baseball has become uh, uh, more multicultural and diverse. Uh, I, I don't know that Tony La Russa consciously cares to play to that fan base, but it's what it's doing. And if you, if you do what I do and you get involved in talk radio talk and, and fan talk on social media and everything, it's, it's still a huge undercurrent. At least it's a very vocal undercurrent of of the baseball fan base right now is it, I, I got a lot of people saying well your mean mercedes needed to be put in his place because he disregarded a sign from his superior officer basically that's kind of what you heard a lot of. <laughs> and you know that's the, the thing he doesn't have to be willfully pandering to you know to that crowd that's how systemic racism racism works it, it, it works in this series of talking points right and discourse that circulate that that that, that, that become palatable to certain demographics you know, uh, that's that's precisely how it works. It, you know, like it, it, it's not necessarily something that's intended. It's that he positions himself in a certain context 
where these are the dominant discourses that operate in a certain sphere, and then he just grabs them. You know, that's kind of how I see it. Well, I think baseball is going to have to reconcile whether it wants to try and attract young people to the game and have a higher number of black players and so on. And as you referenced earlier, have you have you guys seen the um, the commercial with Fernando Tatis for the MLB? God, I'm going to sound so old. <laughs> video the, game. The, the video game, you know the show. Where he says, I'm sorry, that, you know, something like, I'm sorry if you think I, I broke the unwritten rules, but, ba- you know, baseball is never going to be like that. Sorry. What, what does he say? Something like that. That's their marketing. And then you have guys like La Russa doing their thing. And we knew this was coming. Did we not all know this was coming? We talked about how this was coming. Waiting for it, right? I would like to. I would like to take a victory lap because it went kind of viral the other day. Back in October, the day that Tony Larusa was hired, I tweeted and I said, "May twenty fifth, twenty twenty, Larusa takes the side of the opposition against his own player, saying, "I will talk to him." He was out of line, unwritten rules, kind of stuff. I was one week off. Wow, I was only one week off. Weird. I got suckered in because like they're playing the Cardinals next week, and I assumed it would happen against his old team. So. Can I bring the room down for a sec, too? Because there is another example of these unwritten rules outside of baseball, and it relates to uh, something Frank brought up about policing, too. Just yesterday, as we're speaking, the state of Texas carried out one of the numerous executions that they carry out of an African-American fellow named Quentin Jones, who had been in jail for over 20 years for a really egregious murder. Nobody disputes the fact that he did something really, really heinous and and unforgivable. However, he had been in jail for so long. He had been a very young man when he went in jail. He had become a model prisoner. You've, You've heard this story before. And he had been asking for clemency, which was, as I've said, obviously refused given that he is now no longer with us. But one of the things that his defense attorneys brought up in asking for clemency and asking for his death sentence to be converted to a life sentence was that at this exact same time, a white person who had committed a very similar crime in very similar circumstances appealed for that same kind of clemency. And in his case, with very few details being different, it was granted. So why that disparity unless there is something at, at work which is either a very evil kind of whimsy, nah, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. in your case, I don't feel like it, or simply that the white murderer got more deference than the black one did. Yes, you did bring the room down. I, yeah, conversation. <laughs> no, I mean, that's right. I mean, I, I can keep it there. <laughs> so, any one of us is capable of keeping it there, if we're honest. There's a danger where uh, we didn't realize that uh, there were rules that were unwritten that needed to be written, which is sort of in my domain, democracy and elections. We didn't realize that we had to somehow figure out how to take what we all accepted as just a norm of democracy that you... When you lose an election, you accept the results and there's a peaceful transfer of power. God, you can count to look at so many other things that are going on. Talk about written and unwritten rules. I mean, blacks were given the right to vote <laughs> after the Civil War, you know? That was the written rule. And that's still not what's happening, right? But that's a positive unwritten rule that you just pointed out, right? That we accept elections in this country. But we didn't realize that there were some people who were not, <laughs> didn't accept that unwritten right. rule. I still haven't. 
Right. Another another one is that state legislatures don't overturn the popular vote and award the electoral college to the party that, to which they belong. Right. That was I mean, everyone follows that. What there's what, a written rule about that. <laughs> well, I think, but it's well, not. They, it's not a constitutional they write the rules. rule, and it's being challenged at the state levels. Right. So there there are some states that won't have that uh, rule anymore. But but yeah. you used to not even think you needed it. Right now, it's clear that we do, but that's an example of why unwritten rules. I mean, the 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 real reason, and and to me, the miracle of why there is so little voter fraud, and we all know the data on this. I don't have to explain this. Is that no one really tries it, right? It's an unwritten rule. You don't vote twice, and and, and almost everyone, except for a few weird Trump people, follow that rule. It's also an unwritten rule that casting one extra ballot is not a very good way of stealing an election. But some no. people, <laughs> no, but that one that guy either. who voted, but pe- but some Trump people aren't always the brightest electoral strategists, and they do it anyway. Actually, speaking of Texas, you know, there's this case in which this woman mistakenly voted because she had a felony conviction, and she didn't realize that very stupidly there's a law where she can't automatically uh, vote again when she gets her voting rights back. And there was another, and she got five years in prison. Uh, for this um, a couple of years ago, and she's still fighting it. And then somebody else was found to have cast the ballot of their dead mother, I think. Yeah, a white Republican from like North Carolina. A white Republican who I think he got pro- probation, maybe? Yeah, or something a fine like or that. Something. I mean, so there you go again. But that's Texas. Texas's unwritten rules are not very, they don't hide them very well. So as someone who used to in his past life deal with written laws a lot, mm-hmm. I always have found and always thought of this discussion of whether an unwritten rule or a norm or a convention makes any sense is what would happen if you wrote it down, go through the process of how you would actually write this down. Say we actually wanted a rule that says you don't go, you don't swing away three and O against a position player in a game where there's more than a 10 run lead. Say you wanted that as a rule, just because we live in an insane world. Two sentences into trying to draft that law, you, you your brain is eating your head because it makes no sense whatsoever, and you could think of 15 imaginary horribles coming out of the, the, the law that you are trying to write down or the rule you're trying to reduce to writing. You know that you're dealing with a dumb, unwritten rule. At the same time, if you have a situation like, oh, you know, the legislature shouldn't steal elections or people shouldn't vote eight times with their dead grandmothers or whatever. If you think, wow, there should absolutely be a rule about this, then you, then you know that the convention probably has some sense. And and that could even track across an ideological divide, too. I mean, I don't think you have to either be a, a conservative Republican or a liberal Democrat to find some common ground on some of these basic rules. That's where I always come down here. And I don't think anyone ever, in baseball anyway, I don't think people in baseball think of it in those terms. I don't know. Is that a handy way or am I just being overly lawyerly? About no, I mean, that? no, I totally agree. I mean, how would you write a law that says people have to accept the results of an election? Right, I mean, it's absurd. There are some things that you you can do structurally. I mean, it's this you know issue of either okay, yeah, there are structural reforms that you can make, but when you really want to dig deep into it and make really big change, something has to happen in the culture, and something has to happen psychologically, sociologically. I don't know um, um, with the people for it to really stick. I think they are actually not to get too much in the weeds of my world, but. They are um, in some of the laws that are being looked at, trying to figure out ways in which to change the law around vote counting and, and all of these kinds of things. And of course, people are trying to change the electoral college um, rule. But at the end of the day, uh, when you live in a world where truth is irrelevant and nobody's operating from the same set of facts, there's I don't know what the law is that you write for that. 
I don't know, regulation of social media? I'm not, I don't know. ¿Qué desea ordenar? Una Big Mac y... Oye, ¿pedimos 10 McNuggets? Sí. ¿Miti, miti? <ríe> Dale. ¿Te acuerdas cuando mamá te hacía compartir y peleabas? <ríe> Ey, más respeto a tu hermana mayor. El amor de hermanos, tío, de McDonald's. Ordena por anticipado por el app de McDonald's y llévate dos de tus favoritos como McNuggets de 10 piezas y una Big Mac por solo 6 dólares. Precios y participación pueden variar. Producto individual a precio regular. says that the state has to vote, that the state legislature has to cast their electoral college votes with the majority. You need that law because now we're seeing that states may not do that in the future, right? The, to me, the question, to go back to the baseball example, the question is, you know, yes, if it's up by more than 10 and it's after the seventh inning, et cetera, et cetera, you can't write that. On the other hand, to me, the, the only reason I care about the unwritten rule from this perspective is that, like, just get the game over with at some point, you know? And, 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 and what, and because there was, You know, what Mercedes did was cool from an athletic perspective. He hit, I think someone said that pitch was 47 miles per hour. And, and if I hadn't failed physics several times, I would, I would try to figure out what's the slowest you can throw a pitch that gets, actually makes the distance to home plate. What's the slowest speed it can be when it crosses home plate? It's not much slower than that. He then turned on it and hit it over the center field fence. That's actually a pretty tough thing to do. And if you were in the ballpark, it'd be pretty fun to see it. But let me raise another question. What if he bunted for a base hit? I still don't think anyone should have thrown at him. I still don't think his manager should have sold him out. But, but I also think if that had happened, I'd be like, oh, come on, dude. Let's just play ball and get this damn game over with. So, but again, you can't write that down. You bring the other thing up about it's like, how about having some fun, man? Right. The home run is fun. The bunt isn't. Right. No, right. That's what I'm saying, though. Yeah. And, and all the other stuff that breaks the un, some of these unwritten rules. It's about having fun in the game. I mean, it's But Toby, like, you're not suggesting Tony LaRusso is not a fun guy because I think he's just all cheer and exuberance. He's a, he's a and scream. Humor. <laughs> <laughs> um, as we're sitting here, as we're sitting here recording right now, I just popped into my inbox was Major League Baseball has disciplined. Tyler Duffy, the pitcher for the Minnesota Twins, who threw at Yerman Mercedes uh, the next day after that home run. So I, I, I said the other day on social media that if Major League Baseball doesn't discipline uh, Duffy and uh, possibly the manager, Rocco Baldelli, for throwing at him, then Major League Baseball is taking Tony La Russa's side. So I view that suspension as uh, baseball, at least in the little way that it can in this situation, realizing that it's out of bounds to uh, enforce an unwritten rule by throwing at somebody. So viva Major League Baseball. Oh, my God. Wait, MLB did something right? <laughs> once in a while. Wow, man. They do it once in a while. I mean, they're a stop clock. He got a three-game suspension. Duffy got a three-game suspension and an undisclosed fine. And uh, Rocco Baldelli, the manager, got a one-game suspension and a fine. Uh, Baldelli can't appeal his suspension. Duffy can. That's but cool. uh, So there's Major League Baseball at least saying that's bad. And I'm pretty sure they are not going to fine your mean Mercedes. Yeah, I just railed. I just railed against, just to go back to the societal applications of this discussion again, you know, I railed against unwritten rules. And yet, you know, when we were discussing earlier, you know, the kind of the violation of political conventions by by Trumpites um, and the Republican Party, like, I guess 
if I was to defend, uh, you know, conventions and unwritten rules, you know, their existence, uh, you know, suggests a, a functional society, right? Where, where, when we have to reduce everything to a law, suggests that you know that we're not functional at all, that there, we have no shared conventions at all. Um, and so, you know, I, I, in, in, in that discussion, it's like, right, in, in some ways, you know, unwritten rules or conventions are good because they suggest that there is a shared understanding of, 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 of certain codes of behavior or, or traditions or whatever they are. And when they get violated uh, in the ways that they have been recently, then it, then it reveals how dysfunctional the society could be. I mean, that's the flip side of this discussion, it seems to me. Well, and also when you, you don't have a shared sense of democracy being important. Exactly. Uh, and shared values around what that means. That's, I suppose, how democracies die, as they yep. say. Well, I, I think we have exhausted the unwritten rules, at least for this week. Next week, though, Tony LaRusso is still going to be the manager of the Chicago White Sox. And we're going to have him as a guest, I, I hear. <laughs> Tony LaRusso is going to exist in Major League Baseball apparently forever, so we will have plenty of opportunities to relitigate this matter. Uh, Steve, can you play us out? You can follow us on Twitter if you're the sort of person who follows people on Twitter at S-I-A-C-Pod. That's S-I-A-C-Pod. Finally, to invoke another White Sox manager who, like Tony La Russa, tried very hard to get himself fired. In 1968, Eddie Stanky thought he would show his team who was boss by batting his pitcher sixth ahead of players like future Hall of Famer Luis Aparicio The team got the message. He lost the clubhouse. He soon after lost his job. Eddie Stanky was called the brat. What is a brat who torments you without explaining the reason why? Well, the secret is it's for his own satisfaction. We get our satisfaction from explaining why. Actually, it's not just say it ain't contagious, but say it ain't complicated. And so we will be back uncomplicating things, perhaps decomplicating them next week. So on behalf of Lincoln Mitchell, Frank Gritty, Craig Calcaterra, Tova Wang and myself, Stephen Goldman. We'll see you next time on Say It Ain't Contagious. Never mind. Possibly we will cut this. <laughs> this <laughs> discussion, this digression. I would cut that out. <laughs> this, this, this is the danger of, of ad-libbing and following your muse. Goodbye, it leads you down. Like that. Yeah, and, <laughs> out of the ditch. Out of the ditch. <laughs> si tú y tus amigos ordenan en McDonald's, deja que los demás agarren su comida primero. Yo sé. El solo pensar en el olor de las papitas y tener que esperar suena loco. Pero por reglas si esperas, entonces las papitas que quedaron en el fondo de la bolsa son tuyas. Ordena por anticipado en el app y disfruta la recompensa de ser paciente. Para pa pa pa. Móvil orden pay en McDonald's participantes requiere la descarga y registro. Life gets more magical when you dream. So dream of a Disney cruise filled with magic and wonder. <laughs> Hiya, pal! Sail from Florida to Disney's private island paradise and get ready for a dream come true with Disney Cruise Line.